Psalm 63. Psalm 63. And I should say, I got a text from Darla. This is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. It shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. A psalm of David and God's word to us tonight. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Tonight, Lord, as we come again into your presence, we are thankful for the scriptures that you have given to us. It is your word to us. It is your word about who you are. And we are thankful for that revelation that has been given to us. May we always have ears to hear, hearts to receive your word. Pray that you would do that by your spirit. And that that word, as Jesus prayed, that word would sanctify us that it would make us to be more like you. And Lord, tonight as we begin a series to consider the doctrine of God, we ask that you would be pleased to give help to us, give help in opening the scriptures and declaring the very person and the work of our God, who you are. And may it, Lord, not just be academic, I pray that it would be that which is transformative. Those who know your name, they will put their trust in you. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this this series as we consider who you are and the revelation you've given of yourself. And, Lord, tonight we are thankful to see that truth revealed in lives of your people as we think of John and Darla, as we think about their trust in you and this difficult path that they are walking. We are thankful that we've been able to watch them and, Lord, we are helped. 
we are encouraged and our faith is strengthened. We thank you for that. Continue to uphold them, guide them, and direct them. We also pray for Todd as he will be having surgery this week on his shoulder, his arm. Pray that will go well. And then as he resumes his chemo, we again pray for Frost and uh, pray that you would just go with her and before her uh, during this long procedure of this bone marrow transplant. We pray that you would set a guard about her and protect her and keep her healthy and strong as her immunity is weakened. And uh, bless Sherry as well. And Lord, thank you again. Thank you that you are our God. Thank you that you are our hope. And uh, bless this time, we pray. We ask us in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Tonight we're going to begin a series for Sunday night um, on the doctrine of God. Um, the Mexican Indian Training Center had asked if I would do some teaching and make some videos for a series of uh, various doctrines, and one of them is the doctrine of God. They're going to use this in what is going to be kind of a furthering education for their um, students. It's going to be online. Just getting feedback. Anyway, um, so anyway, I would appreciate your prayers for that, um, but I thought it would be good uh, just for myself and for us as we too would be able to consider the doctrine of God. When we talk about theology, sometimes the word theology can speak about the various doctrines of the Bible. We can think about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of the church, um, and those are part of systematic theology, and we sometimes refer to that, that whole body of truth as being theology, which it is. But then often it, uh, when we talk about the doctrine of God, it's referred to as um, theology proper. It is speaking specifically about God himself, his nature, who God is. And uh, so... This is a series that we are going to be considering theology proper. Um, and as I come to the subject, I, I come, as Paul himself said, who is adequate for these things? To speak on behalf of God, I surely feel my inadequacy for this task. And um, it is... Um, yet a task that we're called to, to study and to endeavor to preach and make known who God is and the various attributes of God. And as we think about this, I, my prayer is that, that it will be a not merely an academic thing. Sometimes we can approach theology that way. That we're just learning things and it becomes academic, it's cognitive, you know, and we can we can hear things and just, okay, I understand that. I believe that and not really have any change in our heart or in our life. And I really think that that would be dishonoring to God. How could we study the doctrine of God and not be in awe of who he is? If it doesn't lead us to worship, then have we really understood it? 
You know, the third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And often we think of that, and rightly so, that we hear people that take the name of God in a vulgar way. Isn't it interesting that people will take the name of Jesus Christ in a vulgar way when they're upset, when they're angry, and blaspheme the name of Christ? People will carelessly take the name of God on their lips uh, when, again, something goes wrong. And those certainly are taking the name of the Lord in vain, but I think it means much more than that. To take the name of the Lord in vain is, is to think lightly of the name of God. Um, sometimes we can speak lightly, tritely of God. You hear people saying, you know, the, the, the big guy upstairs or something like that. And we can take the name of God um, in a vain way that way as well. And I think we can do it when we come to the doctrine of God that we can learn, we can read, we can study, but if it doesn't really impact our heart and our life, I think we are maybe taking the name of the Lord God in vain in that way as well. And uh, it's my prayer that, that we will not do that, that I will not do that, that this won't just be academic, but it will be transformative for us, that we will be changed as we think about God. We always have room to know more, don't we? To know it in greater depths. And so I pray that it will be useful in that way. So I want to begin this series just by talking about the personal experience of the knowledge of God. The personal experience of the knowledge of God. David has written this uh, psalm, and we read in the postscript, the superscript, that it was while he was in the wilderness of Judah. This was not just an occasional thing for David. He often found himself in the wilderness of Judah. Um, often it was fleeing from King Saul. When Saul was the king and he had it out for David, David would flee into the wilderness. But I don't believe this is what is in view here, the days of Saul. But we read in verse 11 that David is king, but the king shall rejoice in God. I think this is David speaking here. And many believe that this is in the context of 2 Samuel 15, when there has been an insurrection by Saul or David's own son, Absalom. Absalom is trying to take away the kingdom from his own father. And he gets word that the hearts of the people are with Absalom. Can you imagine that on this Father's Day to think about that? What a, this father went through with his own son. And David has to flee with a band of men. And they go into the Judean wilderness, a mountain region that is east of the Dead Sea. And... Uh, they are away from Jerusalem, the capital. They're away from the tabernacle and the center and the hub of the people of Israel. His life is in danger. Verse 9 says, those who seek my life to destroy it shall go down into the lower parts of the earth. And Absalom was doing that. Um, so he flees. And during this time that he is in the wilderness, 
he evidently finds a quiet place and in this barren wilderness to collect his thoughts and record his thoughts. And this is what we have, I think, here in Psalm 63. We are thankful that God records for us the high points in the lives of God's people as well as some of the low points, and we're helped, we're instructed uh, by those times and the things that uh, God is teaching his people in those sometimes very hard, dark, back-of-the-wilderness back experiences. And uh, so here is this um, chapter in which David speaks about his God. And so as an introduction to this, I thought it would be good to look at the personal experience of the knowledge of God as it's revealed here by David. Notice how he speaks in verse 1. O oh God, you are my God. You are my God. And this is something that David knows personally. He knows his God. He knows him in an intimate way. He's not some distant, vague deity. But he has a personal knowledge of God. He's the same author who wrote the well-known 23rd Psalm, which begins how? The Lord is, he's my shepherd, and I shall not want. He is my shepherd. And so we see David knows God. He's my God. But we also see him longing and seeking to know him better. Early I will seek you. My soul is thirst, thirst for you. My flesh longs for you. And here he is in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. And so as he's away from the tabernacle, away from the people of God, the capital, here in the wilderness, there is this longing and this, this longing and desire to know God, even now in the midst of this difficult situation. And so we're reminded that he is a God who is known experientially. He's not just known cognitively. He's not just, you know, words on a book and a theology book, but he is one who is known in a very personal, experiential way. He's even known on the backside of the wilderness. It is this God who said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And so the heart of the biblical narrative as we read through the scriptures is that we were created to know God in a personal way, to know him personally, to know him and the revelation that he has given of himself. So he is a personal being. I mentioned John 4.24 this morning that says God is a spirit and they who worship him should worship him in spirit and in truth. But this God is a personal being. He has personality as we think about God, the very nature of God. He's not some cosmic force. He is a personal being. And he lives, he has for all eternity enjoyed communion and fellowship with the other members of the Godhead. There's this inner Trinitarian delight that each of the members of the Godhead have enjoyed for all eternity past. God being a personal being has enjoyed that fellowship. He did not create man because he was lonely, but he is a personal God. And uh, there are many things in the scriptures whereby we know this. 
Um, so he's no stoic God. He's personable. He is knowable. And as we think about his creation, he made man in his own image. And what do we find in those who have been made in the image of God? That they too, we too, are like him in this way. We are personal beings. We enjoy the blessing and the capacity of knowing others. We enjoy interpersonal relationships. This is Father's Day. And what a blessing to be a father. And as we think of marriage, a man, and, um, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, cleave to his wife, and they shall become this one flesh. There is this closeness and intimacy that God has designed marriage to be. But more than that, Adam and Eve were created to know God. They were created to know and enjoy fellowship with God. So when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he just didn't there and leave them there. He's a God that revealed himself to them. He's a God that it's implied that he walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. He communicated with them. He gave them gracious commands. And so God made Adam, made Eve, made us to know and experience a personal communion with the creator God. This morning we were talking about the great truth and redemption that God abides in us and we abide in him. Speaking about close and intimate relationship. Just as the son is in the bosom of the father, Jesus says the father has loved you even as he has loved me. That's an amazing statement in, in John 15. But we know as a result of the fall that the descendants of Adam and Eve are living east of Eden. They are no longer in the garden. They have been cast out. There's an angel with a flaming sword there keeping them, as it were, away from the, from, from the garden. They've been separated from God by their sins. And the rest of the story of the Bible is God in his pursuit of fallen sons of Adam to restore them back to a personal relationship with himself. And all of this, as we well know, is the divine initiative. This is God's doing. First John, he loved us. We didn't love him. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the only reason that we know him and the only reason we love him is because he has first loved us. And so as we look through redemptive history, we find God coming and communing and, and addressing men, fallen men, fallen from the line of Adam and entering into a relationship with them. So there is Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God came and spoke to Noah. There's Abraham. God appeared to this pagan idolater in Ur of the Chaldees. He came and he spoke to Abraham, made an amazing covenant with him. It was God who did this. It was God who took this initiative. And what Abraham heard, he believed God, and he left Ur of the Chaldees. And James tells us that Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for, as righteousness. And he was called, what's the title when we think of Abraham? What was the title given him? He's the friend of God. 
Amazing thing, isn't it? Jesus said that to his disciples. I no longer call you my servants. I call you my friends. Abraham was the friend of God. And then there was Jacob who wrestled with God. There was Moses that God appeared to at the burning bush, showed him his glory at at, uh, Mount Sinai. There was a David. And David is known as a man after God's own heart. Then there is Amos 3.2. Out of all the nations of the earth, I have known you, speaking to Israel. I have known you. No other nation have I done what I have done with you. I have known you in a special, particular way. And, of course, we get to the New Testament and the whole earthly ministry of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to bring people into a personal relationship with the Lord himself. And so Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, teaches them how to pray. And how are they to pray? How can they pray? They are able to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then Paul, when he, in his own conversion testimony in Philippians 3, where he says, I count all things lost in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God. He said, I count loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, that I may gain Christ, that I might know him. I may know him. And Jesus could say again to Philip, as I said this morning, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You have known the Father. And then we have at the end of the narrative of Scripture, looking forward to a day that is to come, in Revelation 21.3, where we see this holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. As he sees this new Jerusalem coming down, John hears a loud voice and hears what it says. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. And so here is the consummation of all of redemptive history and the narrative of the scripture, God dwelling with his people. He is their God, and they are his people. So we see, as we look at David here in Psalm 63, that he experiences a personal knowledge of God. Now, what's the origin of this knowledge? Verse 2, so I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Where does David turn to? Where do his thoughts go? Well, he goes to the tabernacle, which represents the presence of God with his people. The God who's revealed himself right in the midst of Israel. And in the tabernacle and later in the temple, these things speak about God and his character and who he is. And we know that he is holy. We know that sin is an offense to him. We know that there is the need for sacrifice recovering for their sins and all of these things again pointing to the nature of God who he is and it is there he says I learned of your power and of your glory the self-revealing God Uh, I think it's in Job that says can man by searching find out God could we left to ourselves could we ever know God left to ourselves no we are dependent upon this God 
to reveal himself to us. And it is he that takes that initiative to do so. And uh, we have seen in 1 John that this is a miracle of his grace. The new birth is a miracle, a supernatural work of God, whereby hearts are changed. There is a heart of stone that is removed, a heart of flesh that is given. And so Jeremiah speaks of this to come, where God will do those things. He will change hearts. He will put the law of God within them. It says in Jeremiah 31, 34, no longer will they have to say to their neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Everyone that is a part of the new covenant, saved by the grace of God through the work and merit of Christ, they're able to say that I know the Lord. And nobody has to say that. Hey, know the Lord. No, they will know him by the witness of the spirit in their life. They will know him. And then as we eavesdrop on Jesus as he prays his high priestly prayer in John 17. Why don't we turn there? John 17, these are, I love these verses. We are given um, great insight into the heart of Christ. We're able to eavesdrop upon this prayer as he prays to his father. This is really the Lord's prayer. And uh, listen to these words of Jesus. What's upon his heart as he goes to the cross? Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his voice to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. Here it is, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. A believer is one who is able to say, I know the true, the living God. And it's all of his grace. It's all of his mercy. In 1 John 4, 7, there where John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for everyone who loves has been born of God and knows him. He knows him. We don't speak arrogantly when we say that. We, I hope we speak that humbly. That the only reason I know God and love God is that he has known me and he has loved me. And so as we think about the knowledge of God, it comes from God himself who's revealed himself to us and who has brought us into a saving relationship with himself. In, John, in Matthew 11, after Jesus speaks about all these cities that had rejected the Son of God with the miraculous things that he did, he says this prayer. Again, we're able to eavesdrop on this prayer. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and you have re revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it, so it seemed good in your sight all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, 
nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If we be in Christ and we know and we can say, I know the Lord, it is all of his grace. In this new covenant we have been given, like David, we are able to say, O oh God, you are my God. You are my Lord. And so this is the blessing that has come to us by the grace of God. At the heart of the gospel, at the heart of salvation, of what Christ has done for us is that he has brought us into a living, vital relationship with the triune God. In the gospel, God has given himself to us. That's the greatest gift that God could ever give to us. Yes, he saves us from hell. Yes, he gives us eternal life. Yes, he pours out blessing upon us. But at the heart of all of that is that we know him. And it's out of the fullness of Christ and who he is that we receive grace upon grace. And there's no greater gift that he could give to us that, that we might know him. Catechism question asks this question, what is God like? He is the best of beings. He is holy, powerful, and good. The best of all beings. And this one has befriended us through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Asaph, uh, uh, in 73, as he's lost sight of who he has as his Redeemer God, as he becomes envious of the wicked, as he looks at their seemingly carefree life and he's jealous, he's struggling, he's stumbling, as he looks at the prosperity of the wicked and his life seems to be hard and difficult. Sometimes I think we've all been there. But he comes, Asaph comes to the place where he says this, I was like a beast before you when I was thinking like that. Nevertheless, I'm continually before you. You hold me with my right up. You, you hold me by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. Out of all the blessings God heaps upon us in Christ, the chief portion of our inheritance is God himself. In thy presence there is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are blessings forevermore. And so here as God is the calling that is given to us to know him. He invites us to know him more and more, invites us into intimate fellowship to come and to know him. So in Hebrews 12, because of Christ, the author writes, the apostle writes, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has con consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near 
with a true heart and full assurance. Get to know me. And again, this is the blessing of the new covenant that through Christ we know the true and the living God. And uh, he invites us to do that. A.W. Tozer said, it is inherent in personality to be able to know other personalities, but full knowledge of one personality by another cannot be achieved in one encounter. My wife and I have been married 43 years, and it's been 43 years of encounter after encounter of getting to know each other more and more and more. And so it is with any friendship. It's getting to know more and more. He goes on and says, it is only after long and loving mental intercourse that the full possibilities of both can be explored. So here is the invitation to this God. And so as we do, let me just read a few verses. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run there to place of safety. Lamentations 3.24, this I recall to my mind and therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Daniel 11.32, those who know your name, they will do great exploits. He's saying about those who, for the faith and following Christ, died as followers of Christ. And those who know your name will do great exploits. They will be faithful even unto death. Psalm 9.10, those who know your name, they will put their trust in you. What is it to get to know the name of God? It has, a, has, a, it has an ex, spirit, experiential result in us. We will put our trust in him as we come to know him as he's revealed himself. So they will put their trust in you. And then Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, wonderful verses. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. No matter what life may bring, the difficulties, the hardships, and the difficulties that come, you will keep him in perfect peace. Jesus gives the great invitation, come unto me all who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. So as we go through this study, would you pray for me and pray for us that it will not just be academic, but that we will come to know God in a more deeper, fundamental way than maybe we have known, and that we together may grow in grace. Probably, again, this is one of those series that's not going to be anything new, but reminding us of things that we already know, that we may grow in grace together. And uh, let me just read this close. I've read this before, but this was a young Charles Spurgeon even before I think he had entered into ministry. We see just how sharp this guy's mind was at about the age of 18. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. 
he who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods this narrow globe. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go and plunge yourself in the Godhead. Be lost in his immensity, and you will come forth as from a couch of rest. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief, so speak to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. That's my prayer for myself and for us as we do this study on the doctrine of God. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that if we be in Christ tonight, we can say that we know you, the true and the living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We thank you for that. May we never take that for granted. May we be ever growing in the knowledge of our God, not just, again, in an academic sense, but in a personal, experiential way. As we look upon our God, would you change us? Make us to be a people that Spurgeon wrote about there that are resting in who you are. So help us that we may grow in grace as we pursue this study. As we go into this new week, go with us, Lord. May you make us to be more and more like Christ as a result of today. Pray that it's a means of grace and helping us on in following Christ. Bless each one as we go our separate ways. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Lord bless you all. Have a good night and have a good week.